0: You'll start making your way back to your seats, and as you do that, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11, Matthew chapter 11. While you're making your way back to your seats and opening your Bibles, let me just say, I know last week we had said that uh, Pastor Lance was going to be preaching this morning, and so some of y'all might be a little disappointed to see me up here, you had to deal with me a lot, uh, but uh, Pastor Lance just had a lot going on at home with some sick kiddos and things like that this week, so going to going to fill in for him this morning. I know that we had mentioned that when I came back we were going to start a series through the book of Judges. We're not going to start that this week just because there's a little bit more work I want to do on on that but we're going <clears> to <throat> take this week maybe next week and just kind of hit some some different passages of scripture not necessarily in a series but this morning I want to look at Matthew chapter 11 beginning in verse 1. And we're going to read through verse 11. So I know some of y'all just sat down, but I'm going to ask you to stand out of reverence for God's word as we look at Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. And we're going to read through verse 11. Hear hear the word of the Lord, what Matthew records for us. When when Jesus had finished giving instructions uh, to his 12 disciples, when he finished giving instruction to his 12 disciples, he moved on from there to teach and to preach in their towns. Now when John heard in prison, and just for clarity, that's John the Baptist, when John heard in prison uh, what the Christ was doing, he sent a message through his disciples and asked him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? And Jesus replied to them, go and report to John what you hear and see, the blind Receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. And blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. And as these men were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swaying in the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothes? See, those who wear soft clothes are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared but the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And this morning, I want us to consider this idea, confessions of a doubting Christian. Confessions of a doubting Christian. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the instruction it gives, the counsel it provides, but more importantly, we thank you for what it teaches us about you. Pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, I ask for physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people, for we are ready to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Confessions of a Doubting Christian. In 1991, then-President George H. Bush, not George W. Bush, George H. Bush, found himself in an interesting and somewhat comedic situation. He was visiting Barcroft Elementary School in Arlington, Virginia. It's not uncommon for presidents to go and to read stories to children in elementary school. And so George H. Bush went to Barcroft Elementary School in Arlington, Virginia. <clears throat> and he'd been reading for a few minutes to the third, grade, third graders there in a particular class when he noticed a skeptical eight-year-old named Anthony Henderson. It's all a true story. You can actually look this encounter up in the White House archives. It's quite humorous. So President H. Bush notices this this child, Anthony Henderson, an eight-year-old third grader. And after seeing President Bush come in with secret service, with an entourage of people, Anthony remained unconvinced that this was indeed the President of the United States. And so he asked President Bush, and this is recorded in the transcript, the conversation, I'm giving you a part of it, but he asked him, are you really the President? To which President Bush responded, yeah, yeah, didn't you know that? What, what do you think I was? A pretending guy? A pretending guy. And so then President Bush asked this third grader. This is a fun, humorous interaction. He asked the third grader, well, heck, how can I prove it to you? And so what followed was a very interesting interaction, one which was captured in photo and put in the USA Today. It's President Bush digging through his wallet, trying to convince this inquisitive eight-year-old boy that he is, in fact, the President of the United States. He pulled out his driver's license first and helped young Anthony identify the letters in his last name, B-U-S-H. Do you see how that spells? Bush. That didn't convince Anthony. Then the picture that was famously printed on the front of USA Today is Anthony expecting the President of the United States American Express card. If he was smart, he would have memorized the numbers, but he's... Inspecting it, looking at the name, looking at the driver's license, looking at President Bush, still unconvinced. And so President Bush then proceeds to pull out photos of himself and his grandchildren, trying desperately to help Anthony understand and believe that he was who he said he was. And at the end of the day, with Anthony still unconvinced, all he could do was offer the third grader an autograph. And continue to, be, to go on being the President of the United States. And I resonate a little bit with that story of young Anthony. I believe John the Baptist would have resonated with this story of Anthony. Even though all the signs pointed to President Bush being the president, even though the students at the school were told the president is coming, when he arrived, he had limousines, secret service, and staff, when all signs pointed to the fact that this was indeed the president of the United States, Anthony still doubted. And I wonder this morning if that's not the story of so many of us when it comes to Jesus. This morning I want to have... Somewhat of an honest conversation. I try to always have honest conversations with you, but I want to have an honest conversation when it comes to being a Christian, professing faith, and yet struggling with doubt. It's interesting, you know, at times when we consider where God has brought us from, when we consider the majesty of his sanctification and how we grow in faith. I mean, God is amazing. The fact that today you and I are not in the same spiritual place that we were two years ago is not a testimony to our faithfulness. It's a testimony to God's faithfulness and his working in our lives. We should be growing, and I'm thankful for what God has done in my life. But I'm still very much aware of the fact, and I hope you are too, We haven't made it yet. You know, There were times of immaturity in my faith that I can remember. As a younger Christian, there were doubts that I had that came to the surface frequently in my life. I don't know if I've told this story or not. See, that's the problem coming up on almost 10 years of being here with you all at Newbury. I don't even remember the stories I've told you. So if I've told it before, well, I've only got so many stories. But I remember once. It's a story that stuck out to me. I remember in middle school. It's interesting the things that stick in your memory. I remember coming home from Wednesday night youth group, and I was struggling with my faith. I mean, some of the stuff that was being talked about, I just wasn't sure if I believed it. I remember on the car ride home asking my dad if I could visit other religious places to see if maybe they had something to offer. And I'll never forget his response, a response I needed to hear, but a response that irritated me in the moment. It irritated me because he was so confident and I was not. But in love and in grace, he spoke these words to me, and it's a response that still shapes my faith today. He looked at me. I remember in the rearview mirror, I, I was sitting in the back, and he said, why? They have no truth to offer you. And my dad was repackaging for me as a middle school kid the response of Peter when asked if he was going to leave Jesus after Jesus gave hard teaching. And Peter says, where else will I go? You have the words of eternal life. You know, side note here. Parents, don't miss those opportunities with your kids. Not even just parents, don't miss those opportunities for you who are friends in your friend groups around those that you love to speak the truth of God into those moments when people are struggling because we know and we believe that the word of God will never return void. And it fascinates me how that one sentence response from my father has stuck with me all these years of my life. The word of God will not return void. Void. So I struggled as a younger child with my faith, but if I'm gonna stand up here and be completely honest with you, I have to admit that some of the same doubts I wrestled with as a middle schooler are still doubts that I can wrestle with today. I mean, please don't put me on a pedestal pedestal, because I'm just not that guy. I struggle at times with the questions. They creep into my mind in some hard moments of what if this life really is all that there is? Like, what if we're wrong? What if like Paul is arguing in 1 Corinthians 15, we are indeed the most to be pitied because we've based our life on a lie. Now, maybe y'all are just way too spiritual and you have never wrestled with that, but I can struggle at times with these questions, but I'm not naive enough to believe that some of you sitting in this room, probably most of you in this room have not struggled with the same thing. Maybe like like me, you can resonate with the dad in Mark 9 who says to Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. Doubt is a weapon of Satan that we must be aware of and conscious of. Doubt is a thief of joy. It robs us of hope and distorts our focus. Doubt has been and can be the reason for some of the darkest seasons of our souls. Doubt can throw us into chaos. That's why James says in James 1, verses 5 through 6, Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting. And here it is, For the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Doubt can bring chaos and confusion into our lives. But the beauty of our text this morning is that it declares to those of us who are Christians and struggle with doubts that the doubts will never have the last word. Like, praise God that the doubts will never have the last word. So let me set the scene for you a little bit since we're jumping right into the middle of a book this morning. We're obviously in the book of Matthew, the first first book of the New Testament, the first gospel that we have, and... And we read this in, in verses 1 and 2. It says, When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he moved on from there to teach and to preach in their towns. Now when John heard in prison that the Christ, what the Christ was doing, he sent a message through his disciples. So we're, we're, we're at the place in the story in Matthew where Jesus is into his ministry. He's well into it to some degree. He's already been baptized by John the Baptist, the very one who is sending his disciples. He's already been tested in the wilderness. Jesus has called his disciples. He has, he has been teaching for some time. He's already delivered the Sermon on the Mount. He's been healing. He's been casting out demons. Jesus has already calmed the storm he, the stormy seas and raised a dead girl back to life. So, so what I'm trying to get you to see is that Jesus is becoming recognized. His name and his ministry are known and his divinity is being revealed more and more as every passing day goes by. And in Matthew 10, the chapter before this, Jesus just instructs and commissions his 12 disciples to be sent out for ministry. So in the beginning of chapter 11, when it says, when Jesus had finished giving instruction to the 12 disciples, he moved on from there to teach and preach in their towns. So it's after instructing the 12 and commissioning them to go do the work of ministry, Jesus continues to teach and to heal and to do what he has been doing. But there's something interesting to note when you study the book of Matthew as a whole. Bear with me, I'm I'm trying to give you the picture so we can get into the text. There's a shift that takes place in chapter 11, and you really see it in chapter 11, 12, and 13. It's almost as if the theme of Matthew takes a deviation. Because at the beginning of chapter 11, Jesus is far enough along into his ministry that many people who have been watching him and following him are beginning to see and understand that if Jesus is the Messiah, he's not the type of Messiah they were expecting. There is a growing skepticism among some who are following Jesus that that if He is the Messiah, He's not going to be the type of Messiah that we thought that He would be. There's a developing understanding He's not going to do what they originally thought he was going to do. He's not preventing what they wanted prevented. He's not giving them the life and the recognition in Rome that they had hoped for. He's not the type of Messiah they were expecting. And we're going to come back to that idea in just a brief moment. But, but let me finish setting the scene. We're also told where John the Baptist is in verse 2. He's in prison. Now, when John heard in prison what the Christ was doing, he sent a message through his disciples. Now, I want to be clear. Some of you might know this, but I don't want to make any assumptions. John is not in prison because he had a moral failure. John is not in prison because he got caught up with the wrong crowd and made some dumb choices. John is not in prison because of unrighteousness. In fact, the complete opposite is true. John is in prison purely because he was being faithful to the teachings of Scripture. We learn a little later on in Matthew why John the Baptist is in prison. Matthew 14, verses three through five say, For Herod had arrested John, chained him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Since John had been telling Herod, it's not lawful for you to have her. And though Herod wanted to kill John, he feared the crowd, since they regarded John as a prophet. So Translate this into Michael's version. John the Baptist is, is faithful enough to declare to a leader, to Herod, you, know, you cannot sleep with your brother's wife. It's not a good look. And the Bible is not for that. And this man wanted that woman so much that he put John in prison. If you know the story of John, you know that it's that very woman. It's her daughter who had a feast after dancing before the king before Herod, he's so delighted in, in, her, in her daughter that he says, Ask of me anything and I'll give it to you. And she says, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. And Matthew 14 tells us that John is beheaded and that head is served to her on a platter. Your faithfulness is not always easy. He's not in prison because he messed around and made some illegal choices. He's in prison because he was holding fast to the God that he had believed in. So you have Jesus then healing, casting out demons, raising the dead to life, teaching of the kingdom of God, and John is in prison. And so what John does is he sends some of his disciples to Jesus to ask him a question. And as we walk through this text, and the time we have left, there are three things that I want you to see in the verses that follow that will hopefully give some insight and hope as we consider what it means to be a Christian who may at times and likely will at times struggle with doubt. Here's the first thing I want you to take note of. I want you to see the doubt of John. The doubt of John. Look at again at verses 2 and 3. It says, now when John heard in prison what the Christ was doing, he sent a message through his disciples and asked him, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Now I want to just here at the jump say that there have been a host of different interpretations to this to what John meant when he asked that question. And so there are three kind of prominent views, and I, I don't normally do this, I only just teach the view I think is most accurate, but I want to at least expose you to what some people are arguing and tell you why I think that this is a picture of doubt above anything else. So there are some who would argue that, well, John's not actually doubting Jesus, he's just asking this question for the sake of his disciples, right? The idea is that John knows that he's probably not getting out of prison, that his life is coming to an end, and so he wanted to make sure that his Je- that his disciples disciples understood Jesus the way that he understood Jesus, that they trusted in him, that they would engage with him, that they would ultimately follow him. They wanted, that John wanted them to encounter Jesus the way that John the Baptist has encountered Jesus. But I struggle with that view. And here's three quick, quick reasons why. First, I believe that the text would have said that if that's the reason why he sent them, Right. I'm sharing you this because I'm trying to develop some how we should look at the Bible and ask and answer some hard questions. I think the text would have given us that information if that was the reason why. But second... If you look at the story of Matthew and you look at all of the Gospels, the disciples of John were already engaging with Jesus prior to this. It's not like they weren't hanging out with Jesus. They weren't listening to his teaching and developing this understanding that he's the Messiah. But I think the nail in the coffin for that view is that in verse four, Jesus tells the disciples to go back and to give the report to John. So if John's asking this question for the benefit of his disciples, why do they have to go back to John and report the answer to the question? It seems like the question is posed not for the disciples, but for John. So I don't think that that view holds much weight. The other argument is that John's simply confused a little bit about the Messiah. It's not that he's doubting him. He's just confused about the purpose of the Messiah. And I'm not fully opposed to this. I think that there's some aspect of truth to that. It is possible. But what makes me leery is Jesus' baptism. John was the person present when the Spirit of God descended like a dove and the voice of God declared from heaven, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. It was John the Baptist who we are told in John 1 29 who declares of Jesus, look the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It doesn't seem like the issue is with John's theology. It doesn't seem like he doesn't understand that this Christ is the Messiah and that the purpose of the Messiah is to take away the sins of the world. So what are we left with? Well, I think the view that most accurately understands the question is that in the midst of a difficult moment in his life, in one of John's darkest hours, doubt creeps into the mind of John because things aren't going the way he thinks they should go. I mean, think about it. John, for the entirety of his ministry, has been declaring a message of judgment on the unrighteous and blessings on the righteous. And his current situation does not seem to match his understanding of what that means. So in other words, John's like, I've been declaring that if you're righteous, God will bless you. And it doesn't feel like a blessing to be in a prison cell. I've also been declaring that God will judge the unrighteous, and it looks like the unrighteous are flourishing. You ever been there? Like, I've been there. Like, David was there in the Psalms when he looked out, and it was like, I almost tripped up. I almost lost my step because I looked at the world and their sin and their rebellion, it just seems like everything was going right for them. But what John failed to account for is that, yes, God's judgment is coming, but it's a delayed judgment, and that's for our benefit, because it's God's kindness and patience that leads us to repentance. But John here, just like the people around Jesus, is starting to see and to understand that this Jesus, if he is the Messiah, is not the type of Messiah that he was expecting. John is faced with the reality that Jesus is not doing what he wanted him to do. Now I want to pause here for two thoughts. First, It's easy to condemn John for a lack of faith and to think, how could you ever think in such a way about Jesus? Like if I'm there, if I'm I'm at the baptism of Jesus and and see the sky open up and the spirit descend like a dove and the very voice of God declare from heaven, this is my my son in in whom I'm well pleased, I'm not gonna doubt that. It's, It's easy to throw John under the bus, but if we're honest, don't we do the same thing as well? There are times when we have expectations of what we think Jesus should do and how Jesus should act and then Jesus does act and it's not what we think he should do and it's not how we think he should do it and we begin to question whether or not he is as good as we thought he was. Whether or not he's as faithful as we thought. I'll tell you, we don't have an honest conversation. You don't have to say amen. Like, I'll I'll preach my own soul. I do that. I want Jesus to act. I want him to move. And in my head, I think it's in line with what scripture says and what it promises. And then God does act and he does move. And it's not what I want and it's not how I thought he would do it. And my first response is to say, God, why have you failed? Why have you messed up? We begin to doubt whether he's really there, whether he actually cares. But here's the second thought I have about John's doubt. No, notice this, and this is a significant, and it might give us a little explanation as to why we so often do that. When things aren't playing out the way that John wants them to. Let me, let me say it like this. When, when the expectations that John has for a life lived in obedience to Jesus don't come to fruition... Rather than question his expectations, he questions Jesus first. Let me try to give an example of this. Again, just opening myself up. Uh, early on in marriage, one of the, the great stories, I didn't tell my wife I was going to do this, so she's going to probably just look down and then I'm, I'm going to make me look bad, not you, so don't worry about it, babe. Um, one of, the, one of the, the things that I had to reckon with was that I had a lot of expectations of, of what a wife would be like and w- w- what a wife should do. Like, I, I had a lot of them in my head. The problem was, I never communicated those expectations to my wife. And a lot of conflict ensued. And the reason that conflict ensued wasn't because my wife wasn't great and wasn't faithful. It was because I had expectations in my mind and didn't evaluate whether or not those expectations were reality whether or not it was right to hold those expectations. But what I did do is blame Aaliyah for not fulfilling my expectations. And it led to conflict, but it wasn't that she was wrong. It's that my expectations were never examined and questioned. And in a much more significant sense, that's what John's doing with Jesus. Rather than examine whether or not his expectations are right, he first looks and asks if Jesus is right. Are you really the Messiah? Are are you really the one promised? So rather than John questioning his expectations, he questions Jesus. And what that shows, maybe even subconsciously, is that John believes that there is no way his expectations can be wrong. So the only solution left is Jesus must be wrong. Can I tell you honestly, brothers and sisters, there are a few things that will lead to crushing doubt, like believing that we are right and Jesus is wrong. And, And again, being transparent, all of us, it's easy to get there, is it not? Especially when our expectation isn't inherently sinful. Especially when our expectation appears to be in line with what God has already promised. It's easy to get to the place where we start thinking, well, my expectation has to be right. The Bible talks about this, which means the only thing left is that Jesus must be unfaithful. He must be wrong. And this is where John is, sitting in a jail cell, doubting if Jesus is truly the Christ. But next, I want to turn your attention to this. I want you to see not only the doubt of John, but I want you to see the assurance from Jesus. Look again, verses four through six. Jesus replied to them. So John has sent his disciples to Jesus to ask this question. Are you truly the one? Are you the expected one? Are you the Messiah? Are you the savior of the world? Or should we expect someone else? And Jesus replied to them, go And report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news, and blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. Now this is incredible to me. The reason it's incredible to me is because I know how I would act if I was in a situation like that. Right, if there's something that I know is true about me, and, and even more, there was a point in time where you knew it and everybody else knew that it was true of me, and then you come to me and you try to act like it's not true about me when you've seen that it's true about me, you've testified that it's true. About me. Like I know how I'm going to respond in that moment. I'm going to be like, come on, bro. You already know, don't you? I ain't got time for this. Like, Go get your head straight and come back and talk to me again. But that's not how Jesus does it. Like, I'm glad Jesus isn't like me. And we can't miss this. Jesus doesn't respond harshly, he responds in kindness and grace and mercy. But we can't forget that Jesus doesn't owe John anything. Like, I want to make it clear, Jesus' messiahship, the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, does not depend on whether or not any person recognizes that he is the Christ and the Son of the living God. Jesus' identity is so secure that the only person he has to rely on in recognizing his identity is himself. He has nothing to prove, and yet he is willing to. Like, that's mind-boggling to me. That is the grace of Jesus. But here's how he does it. He he reminds John's disciples so that they can go give a report to John of his great power. See, Luke actually gives incredible details regarding this moment when Luke records it. And in Luke 7, verses 20 through 22, Luke writes it like this. He says, when the men reached him, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are, the one, are you the one who is to come or should we expect something else? Now notice this detail that Matthew leaves out. At that hour... Jesus healed many people of diseases, afflictions, and evil spirits, and he granted sight to many blind people. He replied to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. So it's not like they come to Jesus and Jesus sits on a rock and says, Let me remind you of all the things I've done in the past. Jesus says to his disciples, okay, come here and sit with me. Bring me your lame. Bring me your deaf. Bring me your blind. Bring me your demon-possessed. And right in the moment, he displays his power. In the very moment of their question, Jesus goes on full display, healing people in their midst, casting out evil spirits in their presence. Jesus is revealing his power, but he's doing more than simply revealing his power. He reveals his power in a way that confirms the Old Testament prophecies they would have known about the Messiah. He reveals his power in a way that affirms Scripture. Take, for example, Isaiah 35, verses 5 through 6. When when it's talking about when the Lord comes and it says then the eyes of the blind will be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy for water will gush in the wilderness and streams in the desert or consider Isaiah 61 verse 1 the spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has appointed me to bring good news to the poor he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners Jesus is confirming in their very presence the promise prophecies of old. He is reminding them of the promise of God and showing his power and that he is the fulfillment of that promise. And so in essence, don't miss this, what Jesus is doing to combat the doubt of John is he is pushing John back into the word of God. He's pushing him back into the Old Testament. Remember the prophecies of the Messiah. Remember what it says about me. Remember what it says I will do. And then evaluate for yourself, not whether your expectations are right, but whether or not I have been faithful to what God has proclaimed about me. And he is pushing him back into the word of God in church. This is how we hold fast in the midst of seasons of doubt and confusion, by remembering the promises of God and remembering the fulfillment of them through Christ Jesus. I know sometimes we get sick of hearing this like, oh, you're going through hard times. We'll just read your Bible. and I don't necessarily want to just say that, but I'm kind of saying that in a sense. Like there is power in the Word of God. If we genuinely believe that His Word does not return return void, then there is power in the Word of God to relieve doubts. There is power in the Word of God to offer hope. There is power in the Word of God to remind us of who Jesus is. See, for some of us, the reason our expectations are so wrong is because we've never brought the Bible to bear on our expectations. We've never asked the question, does God actually promise this thing that I want? Does God say that he will do this for me? Or is this something I'm assuming he will do because I want him to do it? And it sounds like something God would do. Jesus is pushing John back into the word of God. Remember the promise of God. Remember the fulfillment that you are seeing happen in me, in Christ Jesus. Because if there's one thing I know that Scripture testifies to us, it is that God has proven that He always comes through. And so if He is not coming through for you when you want Him to, it means one of two things. It means either your expectation is not in line with God's promise, or your timing is simply not in line with God's timing. Because just because God has promised you something doesn't mean he promises it to you when you want it. And I know it has to be one of those two things because God has never failed to deliver on a promise. I know this because of the gospel I believe. Because way back in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, they tried to cover their shame and their nakedness by making for themselves temporal coverings. And God promised, no, I'm going to have to fix this and it's going to require the blood of an innocent. God made a promise to Abraham that one day, your descendants, they'll be as many as the stars in the sky. God promised his people in Egypt that there is a deliverance coming and it's a greater deliverance than simply being redeemed from slavery in Egypt. God promised the prophets that one day there would be a better shepherd. There would be a a better elder, there would be a better king, there would be a better priest, there would be a better prophet. God promised through the judges that one day this cycle of sin will break forever. And God did not fulfill that promise when they wanted him to. But scripture tells us that at the right time, at the right time, the righteous died for the unrighteous. That Christ showed up That though we rebelled against God, though we we follow after our own ways and try to play God all by ourselves, at the right time Christ showed up and he walked the, the, the sod of the creation that he created. He perfectly fulfilled the law of God. And by dying on a cross and raising from the dead, he became the covering that Adam and Eve longed for. He became the means through which Sons and daughters from every tribe, tongue, and nation can be adopted into the family of God and fulfill the promise made to Abraham. Jesus was the better prophet. He was the better priest. He was the better king, but he did not show up when they wanted to, but he showed up at the right time. And that's the message that we believe. The gospel declares to us that God has never failed to deliver on his promise. But I want you to notice this. See, this is what Jesus does. He pushes John to the word. He pushes him to remember that God is faithful. He has never failed. He never will fail. That, that he reminds him that, that Jesus is doing the thing that God promised the Messiah would do. But notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't free John from the jail cell. And it's not that he couldn't. I mean, we know from Peter's testimony in Acts 5 that Peter's in jail, chilling in jail, not planning on being, he's just planning on being in jail, and an angel of the Lord shows up and opens the jail, and he walks out. They go look for him, and they're like, uh, he's not here. He's back out on the streets preaching again. What are we going to do? It's not that God doesn't have the power to give him what he wants. It's that what Jesus is testifying is that the Messiah we need is not a Messiah who will meet all of our expectations. The Messiah we need is a Messiah who can and has saved our souls. That's the Messiah we need. Like, and that's a good thing for us, that, that Jesus knows what we need better than what we know. Because let's be honest, there are some times in our life where if we look back, there were moments and seasons where we really wanted God to give us something. And we might have even doubted because of his lack of giving it whether or not he was good. But now we're five years down the road and we look back and we say, man, if God would have given me that, even though it was a good thing, if he would have given it to me in that moment, it would have crushed me. Like God knows what we need better than we know what we need. And the Messiah knows what the Messiah should do better than anything we could infer about him or try to expectation we could place on him. In those moments, church, of great doubt, of great confusion, those are the moments we have to cling to the wonders of God that we have already seen. Because if we are children of God, we have seen his hand move. The problem is we so often allow hardship and circumstances to darken the glory of God and all we can see is the promise and the circumstance. And Jesus, when we cry out to him from the depths of confusion and doubt, he will be gracious to remind us. It is not his desire that we be confused or doubt. We see this in verse 6. He says, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Jesus condemns the doubt, but I love that he does not condemn John. And we see this brought out in the last few verses. So here's the last thing I want you to notice from our text is morning. I want you to see the, the faithfulness of Jesus. So not just the assurance of Jesus, but the faithfulness of Jesus. Look again, verses 7 through 11. So Jesus does all these things in their midst. He heals people right in their presence. And Matthew records that as the men were leaving, so as John's disciples were leaving, Jesus begins to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed swaying in the wind? What did you go out to see a man dressed in soft clothing see those who wear soft clothes are in royal palaces what then did you go out to see a prophet yes i tell you the more and i tell you and more than a prophet this is the one of whom it is written see i am sending my messenger ahead of you he will prepare your way the way before you truly i tell you among those born of a woman no one greater than john the baptist has appeared but the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he like Jesus does not condemn John for doubting that's amazing like he is questioning the messiahship of the messiah he is questioning the divinity of the divine and yet Jesus does not condemn him for his doubt can we just for a moment rejoice about the fact that we don't have a fickle savior that we don't have a fickle savior he is not he is not moved and swayed like we're moved and swayed when we're offended. He's not moved when, when people are rude to him the way that we're moved when people are rude. to him. He's not a fickle savior. In other words, he doesn't give up on us because we stumble and fall. Praise God. Like, I, I need you to know that you can ask him hard questions like John asked him. That you can bring real doubts and real pains and real struggles and lay them at the feet of Jesus and trust in confidence that he is not a fickle savior and he's not going to turn his back on you because you ask hard questions. Jesus will not leave you because you doubt. And what I love about the faithfulness of Jesus on display in these verses, it's not only that Jesus not abandoned John in the moment of doubt, but he actually commends him to the people who were present. There are some significance to the questions that he's asking them. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A a, a reed swaying in the wind? He said, when you went out and saw John in the wilderness, did you go out there because you thought he was a weak man? Is that why you went out there? You wanted to go see a weak man? He said, no, the answer is no. He's like, what, what did you go out there to see? Somebody dressed in soft clothes? Did you think that, that John was kind of pompous and on his high horse dwelling like the kings dwell in palaces with servants, having all of his needs attested to? A soft person. No, that's not who you went out there to see. Who'd you go see? A prophet? Yeah, you went to see a prophet. In fact, he's the prophet who's the fulfillment of the prophecy in Micah that, that another Elijah is gonna come. This is the one who's preparing the way for Jesus. And why this is so significant is because even in the moment of doubt, Jesus is not defining the service of John by his moment of weakness. Like, that's your amen and you missed it. Like, you will stumble and you will fall and you will fail and Jesus won't define the entirety of your faith by that moment because he defines it by his righteousness. I love that about the faithfulness of Jesus. Not only does he not abandon John, but he commends him. There has never been another person born of a woman with the faith like John. Like me reading that, I'm like, you're talking about the dude that's doubting you right now, right? Like literally just ask whether you were the Christ, the son of the living God, whether you are God in flesh, whether you are the Messiah. And on top of that, he had all the evidence. That's the dude who has the, the greatest faith? That's the guy that you're going to hold up as a picture of faithfulness? Yeah, that's the guy. Because the measure of our faith is not defined by our weakest moments. And I want to remind you this morning, I'm bringing this thing to a close. That the grace of God does not depend on the strength of your faith. The lavished grace of God that is poured out on you does not depend on the strength of your faith. There's a clip that goes around on the good old social media it makes its way around every... Every year, so you might have heard it. Um, You know, that's the good thing about social media—you can't steal other people's stuff because some people have seen it. But it's a clip by uh, by D. A. Carson talking about the grounds of our salvation. And I'm not going to do it justice because he's a much better preacher and theologian than I will ever be. But I'm going to at least tell you, give you the picture that he 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 offers. He talks about. He says this. He says picture picture two Jewish men sitting together the night before the Passover in Egypt, All right? So we're back, we're back in Egypt. We've gone back a few thousand years to, to when they're sitting and they know that the angel of death is coming. You remember that plague, like the angel of death coming to kill the firstborn? And the remedy that God gave, he said, listen, if you want the angel of death to pass by you, you got to put blood on the doorpost. And he says, imagine that there are two Jewish men sitting there and one of them says to the other, are you nervous about tonight? And the other one responds, not, not really. God told us what to do. You don't have to be nervous. You did what he said, right? You put the blood on the door. You ate the meal. You're ready to go and leave Egypt. Like you've done all that God has said to do. And the other man says, yeah, well, well, of course I have. But it's still pretty scary, isn't it? It's strange times. Think about the plagues we've seen. And now the angel of death is passing through and going to take the firstborn sons. This is a scary time. I'll be ready for this night to be over. And the other man responds, I'm not worried about it. I like how Dia Carson says, he says, the other man says, bring it on. I trust God. But then Carson asks this question. He says, that night, which one of those two men lost their son? Which one? And the answer is neither, because death did not pass them by based on the intensity of their faith. Didn't pass them by because of the strength of their faith or the consistency of their faith. Death passed them by because of the blood of the lamb. Like, I don't know about you, but I need to be reminded of that sometimes. That Jesus will never let his children go. Despite doubt and confusion and ignorance and sin, nothing will cause Jesus to abandon his own. He is that faithful. As Paul says in 2 Timothy, if we are faithless, he is faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. He's not basing his love for you based on you. He's basing his love for you on his own identity. He's not basing his grace on your performance. He's basing it on his own mercy. God is so faithful that he will not abandon his children when we stumble and fall. And we will stumble and we will fall. And yet, when we are faithless, he is faithful. You and I will struggle in this life. We will struggle in our faith. Because we've not made it. But Christ will be faithful. And so we rest in Him. And in those moments of doubt, we run once again to the Word of God and we see the promise of God. We see the fulfillment. We run to the cross and we plead for God to give us a heart to remember. And whether God answers that prayer immediately or it takes 10 years, The measure of our salvation has never depended on the intensity of our faith, but on the blood of the Lamb. And when we are weak, the blood will always remain strong. And so my prayer for each and every one of you is that in those hard moments when the teachings of Jesus get tough, when the practice of Jesus worked out in our life gets tough, when there are hard moments that when we are faced with the question, are you two going to leave? We would respond like Peter, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Indeed, God, I believe, but help my unbelief. In those moments when I want to judge your faithfulness based off of my expectations and not your word, I pray that you would forgive me and that you would give me grace to remember that in Christ Jesus, you have given us a Messiah that we need but that doesn't mean we'll have everything we want and that's okay because if we have grace and mercy, if we have salvation because of Christ's finished work on the cross, then we have all that we need. Lord, I don't know, maybe right now in this place, a brother or sister is in one of those dark nights of the soul where there are a lot of questions and not a lot of answers when there's a lot of pain and not a lot of relief, God, I pray right now that your spirit would flood over them with a remembrance of how faithful you have been and an assurance that you will continue to be faithful. But God, we have to pause and praise you for the fact that when we are faithless, you are faithful because you cannot You will not deny yourself. And so all praise to your great name. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.